And there is your object lesson on patience <laughs> as we deal with race in America. So, as we get started, let me just tell you a brief anecdote. In 1861, there is a church in Augusta, Georgia. It is the start of the Civil War. And the Presbyterian Church USA is having an argument over the issue of slavery. Presbyterians in the North are arguing that slavery should be abolished and that they should support the Union. Presbyterians in the South are arguing that it's a states' rights issue. And nobody has the authority to tell each state, let alone the church, whether they should or should not support slavery. And so in 1861, they split North and South Presbyterians over the issue of slavery. Now, they held out longer than Baptists and Methodists, which split over the same issue in the 1840s. But so in late 1861, they get together at First Presbyterian Church Augusta, and they have the first meeting of what would become known as the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America. A church literally founded for many reasons, but, but certainly not least of which to defend the right of states and individuals to have slaves, to defend racism, to defend white supremacy. The pastor, the senior minister of the church was a good churchman, Joseph Ruggles Wilson. And he hosted this meeting. And I begin with that antidote because it's a lead-in to our question tonight. Does Christianity help or hinder racial equality? And I won't leave you in suspense. I'll tell you right up front what I think, and then we'll unpack it. So to this very critical question, does race, does Christianity help or hinder racial equality? My answer is an unequivocal yes. Does it help or hinder? Yes. Does it help? Yes. Does it hinder? Yes. And so the reality is, you know this, is a very complicated question. Does Christianity help or hinder racial equality? What I hope happens this evening is that no matter what your reflex reaction, yes, Christianity helps, no, Christianity doesn't help, whatever your reaction, I hope to challenge you. And so for those who think that Christianity helps racial equality, we're going to go through some hard history that's going to challenge that idea. We're going to see how Christians were not only complicit in the racism of the society around them, but actually actively helped form racist laws, policies, practices, ideas that created the racial caste system. And for those of you who say, oh, Christianity, all that does is create racism. All that does is create more problems between the races. I want to challenge you, too, and give you some examples, particularly from the black church tradition where Christianity did, in fact, help contribute to racial equality, where people used 
the very same religion that had been uh, an instrument of subjugation and oppression, they deployed it differently and it became an instrument of liberation and a motivation for dignity. So no matter what your answer to this question is, no matter where you stand at the outset of this presentation, what I hope happens is that you will encounter some ideas that will challenge your natural reflex and perhaps complicate this question for you. I study history, and history is all about complicating our understanding of the past and even the present. So, what, how are we going to do this tonight? It's a very simple plan. It's in three parts. Number one, I want to actually set the stage by talking about a biblical understanding of race. It would be a mistake for us to assume, A, that we all believe the same things about race just as Americans, and B, it would be a mistake to think that the Bible talks about race the same way that we do in the United States in 2018. There are some differences, and those differences are important. So I'll unpack what what does the Bible mean when you see that word race in the Bible, and what do we mean in the United States when we talk about the word race? What are some differences? What can one learn from each of those sources, and we're going to use that as a foundation to then talk about a history of race in the American church, and this is where it gets really hard for some people, because I think the honest reality is we have not fully come to grips with the level of racism in the American church, both historically and in the present, and so what I'm going to do is Reveal some of those hard stories of where Christians were just flat-out racist. Not just society at large, not just a political figure or an everyday citizen, but people acting as Christians, reinforcing racist ideas. We'll also give some counterexamples. In part three, Christian resistance to racism. Again, Not just people acting as everyday citizens, but people acting as a result of their faith and challenging the racial hierarchy of their day. And then we'll close with some next steps. So let's set the boundaries for this talk because I don't don't want you to get mad at me because I didn't talk about this or didn't talk about that. So let me tell you what I am going to do and what I'm not going to do. First of all, This is a primarily historical approach. I'm a student of history, all right? I have training in in theology, uh, but mainly what you're going to see here is a historical approach, which so for, for Christians in the room, sometimes you get nervous if you don't hear Jesus every other word. I just want to put you at ease. It's okay. We're going to talk about what happened in the past and try to figure out what it means for us in the present. And so... What I'll be doing is a historical survey, which means I'm not just going to focus on one incident or one person or one community. I'm going to hop around a little bit. What I'm going to try to do is give you a sense of the chronology of the United States. So I'll start all the way back in the 17th century, and I'll end up pretty close to the present day. And in each major era, I'm just going to try to give you a representative example of what I'm talking about. But I promise you, history is interesting. One of my main missions in life is to, is, to, is to help everybody develop a love for history in general and U.S. history in particular. So I promise it'll be interesting and it'll even be challenging. Next, 
there's an emphasis on the black and white racial divide, right? So part of knowing history is knowing the history of race-based chattel slavery, and not only the past effects of that, but the present implications as well. And so because of that unique past from slavery to legalized segregation in the form of Jim Crow to more institutionalized and systemic forms of racism, you can think of public education or mass incarceration or health or any number of issues, all of those things tend to fall along racial lines. And the biggest divide, of course, in America is the black-white divide. Now, having said that, I hope that what I'm going to say is going to be helpful to you no matter what your context. And so whether you're uh, an immigrant to this country, whether your main context is, is a Spanish-speaking environment or something else, I think there are some general principles here that are going to be applicable to you no matter what your situation, because what this is ultimately about is how do people who are different get along. And that applies to you no matter what your context. So even though I'm going to talk mainly about the black and white divide, just take what I'm saying and filter it to your current context. Does that make sense? Yeah, you can talk to me. You can talk to me. See, uh, in the black church tradition, when you preach, it's dialogical, okay? It's not just a monologue. So if you hear something you agree with, you can say what? Amen. Amen. That's right. And even when you hear something profound, you can be like, ooh, oh, ah. I do that in movies all the time. People don't like it, but it's okay right here. The, thing, the next thing I want to say is, is this is not about bashing white people, all right? I love white people. Some of my best friends are white. That's a joke if you didn't get it. <laughs> the point is that the way that race has worked in America, the hierarchy puts white people at the top of the pyramid and then people of color at the bottom socially. And so when we talk about racism in the American church, a lot of times we're talking about the racism perpetuated by white people, but I'm not bashing white people. I'm just trying to tell the truth. And this is just the way it is. So I don't want you to leave here and say, oh, man, he was just trying to guilt white people. He was just trying to get whitey. That's not what this is about. I'm just telling you the way our society has been structured has, has put advantages for some and disadvantages for another, and that just happens to fall along that black-white racial divide. And so along with that, it's not about bashing white people, nor is it about a guilt trip, but I do think there ought to be a measure of what the Bible calls godly grief. And so in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul writes to the Corinthians about some things that haven't been going right in their church. And Paul's burden is for the church to hear what he's saying, to receive it, and then to change. And so he talks about this, kind, this, 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 this concept of godly grief, and he says, godly grief leads to repentance without regret. Whereas worldly grief just produces sorrow that leads to bitterness and no real change. And so while it's not about provoking a sense of, of sort of racial guilt in you, I do think that the church would do well to experience a degree of godly grief which leads to repentance, a turning around, a changing in her ways. And so bear that in mind as you hear some of these hard truths, some of these truths that may challenge what you've grown up with or what you've heard previously, a sense of godly grief. So those are some of the parameters, what I'm going to do, what I'm not going to do. 
But who the heck is speaking to you? Let me tell you a little about me. So I was born and raised in the Chicago area, but I got down to the deep south. There's different parts of the south. There's south-ish. There's south and west. Each state has its own brand of south. But I was in the deep south. I joined Teach for America, and they placed me in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side. And I was at a brand new public charter school, and I was a sixth grade science and social studies teacher. Those are some of the students in one of our first graduating classes from high school. So we were middle school, went all the way up to high school. And I had the privilege of teaching these beautiful young minds. But we were also in a context where at one time the county was the 20th poorest county in the United States. The poverty rate to this day in the town is more than twice the national average. And so you're dealing with issues of generational poverty and everything that comes with it. You're talking about poor health, poor education, a lack of healthy food options, a lack of colleges and universities in the area, you name it. And all of those issues were not abstract. All of those issues walked into my classroom every day on two feet. And I had to challenge myself as a person of faith to say, what does my religion have to say about these issues of injustice? Because it can't just be about me. It can't just be about me being a nice person or personally holy. There, there, there's got to be some sort of burden for other people, some sort of question and response to the question of who is my neighbor and how do I treat him or her. So that led me on a journey. I went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, hoping to equip myself with more Bible knowledge to be able to address some of these issues and, and yes, speak to issues of, of race and the church. While I was there, we started something called the African American Leadership Initiative, and the goal was twofold. One, we wanted to recruit more African Americans to the seminary, and two, we wanted to equip Christians of any race for cross-cultural ministry. About the same time, I helped start something called The Witness, a black Christian collective. It used to be called the Reformed African American Network. Now we're called The Witness. And what that is is a website, thewitnessbcc.com. Thewitnessbcc.com. What that is is a website, and what we try to do is address the core concerns of black people biblically. And so we want to look at issues of race, religion, and culture through a, the lens of faith, but also the lens of the unique uh, black experience in America. And so I invite you to check out the website. A couple years later, we started a podcast called Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. And so we do interviews, we do conversations. Uh, 2018 has been a fun year so far. Uh, we just recorded an episode on the Black Panther. So if you haven't seen the movie, see it first, because our podcast is full of spoilers, but it's a lot of fun. And uh, we also recorded an episode that's become really popular, and it's, it's called What We Not Finna Do Is. And then we list like 10 different things that we're not going to do in 2018 because we are not going to have a repeat of previous years. Uh, so I invite you to listen to that podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. But through these things, I am trying to, I'm attempting to come to grips with race and the American church. Lastly, I began a couple of years ago a PhD in history at the University of Mississippi. 
And that all began not with just some abstract interest in history. That began with a very real situation that all of us are familiar with. I really became passionate about history and rediscovered my passion for history in 2015 when the events of Ferguson went down. Officer Darren Wilson kills Mike Brown. Whatever your view of what actually transpired that day, it raises some important questions, such as, how does a predominantly white police force come to police a predominantly African-American and poor community? How do those dynamics work? How do they not work? And as I was reading and trying to discover more about this situation and, and, and trying to inform myself on how to think about it, I found that historians had the best things to say because historians were able to give a longer view and more context. And so they were able to trace uh, the, 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 the history of slavery moving on to uh, uh, legalized slavery in the form of the convict lease system moving on to sharecropping, to redlining, and to all these policies and practices that led to the current state of affairs that we see in so many inner city and ghetto communities. And so I wanted to learn more about that. So now I'm studying uh, second half US history. So don't ask me about stuff before the Civil War. I don't know. <laughs> but I'm focused on 20th century race, religion, and social movements, examining the role of faith in justice. And so that's where I am, and that's what drives a lot of my work. So I just wanted you to know a little about me, because this is not just an intellectual exercise for me, and it's not for a lot of black people. It affects us personally. We can't approach this merely in an academic sense and flip it on and flip it off whenever we want to, because the moment we walk out the door, Issues of race are constantly affecting us. Amen. And, until our, thank you, and until our white brothers and sisters start to understand that burden, our progress in this area is going to be limited. So that's where we are. Now, turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor. Get ready. Turn to your other neighbor and say, neighbor. Here we go. Uh, enough of the preliminaries. Let's get it in. Now let's talk about a biblical understanding of race, because like I said before, we can't just import our modern U.S. ideas about race and racism into the Bible, because the Bible's written in a different context. But that's not to say that the Bible doesn't address race, because I told you at the beginning what this is ultimately about is how do people who are different get along. And the Bible definitely addresses that, but it's going to do it in a different way than you might expect. So let's get into it. A book I highly recommend is called Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. Divided by Faith. In that they say this, race as a social construct arose in the 16th and 17th century to justify the overtaking and enslaving of whole people groups. Now, what's critical about this, all of, it's pretty, all of it's important, but what's critical about this is that they call race a what? Social construct. That means it was invented. It was created. It was engineered. 
that it doesn't really have a biological basis other than the amount of melanin in one's skin, but that really makes no difference as far as intelligence or, or emotions or certainly not one's spiritual capacity. So this concept of race and the idea that one's skin color would have all this meaning is a social construct. But listen carefully, just because it's a social construct doesn't mean it's not real. So yes, race was, was built. It was decided upon that these factors would have a certain meaning, but that doesn't mean that race doesn't have a real-world impact. Race is the cause of lynchings and slavery and over-incarceration and hatred. So the impact of race is very real, even though the construct of race has been imagined and created. You with me so far? Makes sense to you? All right. Now, some characteristics of race as a social construct. One, it is culturally and contextually defined, which means race is not static, it's elastic. It changes over time and circumstance. So race, the meaning of it, the way it's applied, it changes based on where you are and when you are. Secondly, it has to do with physical features. Race, as we understand it today, has to do with physical features like skin color, hair, and body types. But only certain physical features. See, this is the construct part, right? Why is it that we constructed a hierarchy based on skin color and not eye color, or ear size, or height? It's socially constructed because we decided on an arbitrary physical feature, someone's skin color, and said, that has meaning. And that's the third point. Race not only identifies these physical attributes, but it places a value on them. So people of lighter skin have more social, political, economic capital than people of darker skin, particularly people of African descent, black people. And so race has a social meaning that gives you certain benefits and advantages based on skin color. So these are some of the characteristics of race as a social construct. We invented it. The United States race has been used to separate and divide between slave owners and slaves, black and white, and all other kinds of human-made divisions. But the Bible generally doesn't speak about race in the same way that we understand it in 2018 in the United States of America. So it's important not to import our own modern ideas of race into the Bible. When the Bible talks about race, it rarely uses that English word, R-A-C-E. But when it does talk about race, it talks about the unity of humanity. And so Acts 7, 20, 17, 26, and he, God, made from one man, one person, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. What this passage is talking about is a theory that in the uh, 19th century they called monogenesis, or one beginning, one origin, versus a theory called polygenesis, 
many origins, many beginnings. The theory of polygenesis was used by white supremacists to say that black people are actually descended from a different species, perhaps apes, and it makes them biologically and intellectually inferior. Therefore, their only proper place is as slaves. Now, believe it or not, many other white racists who were Christians, they refuted that idea of polygenesis because they read Genesis chapter 1, and they read Acts 17, and they knew the story of Adam and Eve, and they said, no, there's one race, the human race, and so they advocated this idea of monogenesis, but that did not mean equality because they used other things like the so-called curse of Ham to say that black people were relegated to a state of servitude, and so they used theology and not biology to reinforce white supremacy. But if you take all that out <laughs> and you look at the actual context and the intent then a passage like Acts 17.26 speaks to the biological unity of all people and the monogenesis of all people. Instead of race, the Bible talks more in terms of the category of ethnicity. And so another helpful book is a book by J. Daniel Hayes called From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race, and he speaks to this idea in depth. Ethnicity in the Bible is a, a much more appropriate term given the context. It's a more biblical category. Ethnicity is a very broad category that includes lots of different things, such as physical appearance, language, religion, geographical location, ancestry, even your dress and your diet could be part of your ethnicity. Okay? When the Bible talks about ethnicity, though, the most common meaning is geography and ancestry. Geography, where you come from, and ancestry, who you come from. And so you think of the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, Egyptians, all of these different people groups, mainly identified by where they're coming from and who they're coming from, which would also include something like language. And so the Bible is talking about different people groups all over the place. But if you're thinking about modern 21st century terms in, of race, you might miss it in the Bible. But if you think about ethnicity, then all of the things that the Bible says about ethnicity, we can apply to issues of race in America today. You with me? Biblical categories, right? Versus race as a social construct. Now, here's a quote from that book that I think is helpful. I'll give you the extended quote. It says, while North American Christianity has a strong historical tendency to be ethnocentric, and part of this distortion is to project Caucasian people back into all aspects of the biblical story. Let me break that down for you. North American Christians tend to import ideas of whiteness and race into the Bible. Here's an example. When you hear the Bible talk about Jew and Gentile, people tend to categorize Jewish as white and Gentile as people of color. But the reality is that unless you are ethnically descended from Jews, you're a Gentile. And so when we read the Bible and we're talking about all these people coming in, 
a lot of times we're thinking, okay, it's the established white group, and then all these people of color are being welcomed in in the New Testament. That's, that's not what the Bible's talking about. If you're not ethnically Jewish, you're a Gentile, and you're ingrafted along with the rest of us. But that's one of the ways we import race into the Bible. The quote goes on to say, coming to grips with the multi-ethnic, non-Caucasian cultural context of the Old Testament and really the New is a critical foundational step in developing a truly biblical theology of race. So what that means is you've got to see the Bible in color. You have got to recognize that when you are reading about different people groups, different ethnicities, these folks ain't European. They ain't white. Most of these people are brown-skinned, and they don't speak English. But that's typically not how North American Christianity reads the Bible. We read whiteness into the Bible, and even black people do it because white supremacy affects us all. So one of the things that you got to do intentionally is when you read that book, whether as a scholar or a person of faith, you've got to read the Bible in color. Amen? All right. A biblical understanding of race. Now, I think a foundational text of the Bible for helping us understand race and how different people groups get along comes from the very first chapter, the creation story. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man, meaning humankind in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In the Psalms, it says that humanity is the crown of God's creation. Human beings, whatever you look like, are God's delight. Why? Because God has placed his fingerprint upon you. He has made you in his image and likeness, which means what? You have the capacity to think and feel and reason and create. The crown of creation above all the animals that can't do those things. He's made us a little lower than the angels. And he tells us how we ought to treat each other because we are made in his image and in his likeness. We all have inherent dignity. And we need to treat each other like this. And by the way, this goes for Christian and non-Christian. This is a human category right here. The image of God tells us how to pe treat people who don't believe the same way as we do, who don't look like we do, who don't have the same sexual orientation, who don't live on the same continent, who don't speak the same language. All people are made in God's image and likeness and are worthy of dignity and respect. That's what this passage is saying. It's a foundational passage for how we treat each other across any sort of difference or division. It's what the Bible has to say about race and ethnicity. I could go on. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible speaks about this, but I'll just do one more passage. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This speaks to our spiritual equality as believers. These three categories, I think, are helpful. Jew or Greek, those are ethnic categories, religio racial categories. There's neither slave nor free, that's an economic category, class, if you will. And then no male or female, obviously gender. And so you can think of race slash ethnicity, class, and gender for you're all one in Christ. Now, what it doesn't mean is that there's no distinction. 
What this passage does not do is erase any differences. I think God loves diversity. I think he celebrates diversity. And he doesn't flatten it out. What he's saying is the ground is level at the foot of the cross. What he's saying is that all are equally in need of a savior. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, all have equal dignity before the eyes of God through faith in Christ. And so there's a special burden for people who call themselves Christian to treat one another with dignity and respect because we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what Galatians is saying. Now, I could do a whole presentation on this, but, but let that just be the appetizer for you. Let that just lay a foundation. And what I hope you got was, was some of the, a, a little bit of the differences between how we think about race as a social construct and how the Bible talks about race and ethnicity and, and, and how we ought to treat one another based on a biblical story. And we're going to use that as a foundation to go into this next part, the history of race in the American church. Now, remember, our central question is this. Does Christianity help or hinder racial equality? And I said the answer is what? Yes. yes. What I want to first do is talk about some of the ways, some of the very tragic ways, but ways we need to talk about and know about, that Christianity has hindered racial equality. A lot of this comes from my studies. So I read literally hundreds of books on history, and it is hard. It is hard to read about racism in America, and as a person of faith, it is really hard to read about racism in the church. And so what I'm about to tell you and some of the events, these are, these, are, these are things I've discovered on the way, things that have really struck me and have helped me come to an understanding of how deep and how far back the problem of racism goes in the American church. Um, it was just last summer, I took a trip to Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, Colonial Williamsburg, and I was in one of the museums there. And so, of course, Virginia is one of the earliest and oldest settlements in the United States. And what happened there uh, is really indicative of, of, of what tended to happen with the rest of the United States. And I remember being struck reading one of the panels in the museum. The panel said this, it was a law passed by the Virginia Assembly, and to be in the assembly, you had to be an Anglican in good standing. We have some Anglicans here tonight. Sorry about that, but there's going to be something positive a little later on. So the Virginia Assembly passed a law in 1667. What's important to remember, again, race is a social construct. So in the 17th century, you don't have these hard and fast rules about black and white and what that means. That you actually had to make that up as you went. And so they were making the rules up as they were going, but in a very short amount of time, they created a system where people of African descent were on the bottom and, and, and Europeans, particularly white and French, they were on the top. And here's what they said that got me. So even early on, you had missionaries who wanted to evangelize African slaves, but the slave owners didn't want it. Why? Because you start preaching passages like Genesis 1.27 and Galatians 3.28, and all of a sudden your slaves start getting ideas about equality and freedom and liberation, and suddenly 
your workforce is rebellious. And so slave owners didn't want European missionaries preaching the gospel to their slaves. So the missionaries made a compromise. And they worked with the assembly to pass this law. The law said, whereas some doubts have arisen whether children that are slaves by birth and by the charity and piety of their owners made partakers in the blessed sacrament of baptism, so this is about baptism, should by virtue of their baptism be made free. So it says some people are worried about baptism and whether that's going to make slaves free. It is enacted and declared by this grand assembly and the authority thereof that the conferring of baptism does not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. That diverse masters freed from this doubt may more carefully endeavor the propagation of Christianity by permitting children through slaves and those of greater growth, if capable, to be admitted to that sacrament, meaning baptism. In other words, if a slave gets baptized, their soul will be free, but not their body. And they passed a law that said this. And what got me was, this is 1667. This is more than 100 years before the Declaration of Independence, more than 100 years before the Constitution. And so racism in the American church actually predates the political entity known as the United States of America. That's how old and far back racism goes, not only in this country, but in the church in America. That's just one example. Another example along those lines. There is a, Baptist, there is a uh, missionary named Francis Lejao, and he was a very dedicated missionary. He was genuinely concerned about the eternal salvation of both indigenous people and African slaves. And so he labored at great risk to his own health and fortune to preach the gospel to slaves. And when he was successful at converting them, he would baptize them. But when he baptized them, he made them say these baptismal vows. He made to uh, made them make these promises, this, this verbal oath. And here's what he made them say upon baptism. You, meaning African slaves converting to Christianity and getting baptized, declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask for holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience you owe your master while you live but merely for the good of your soul and to partake in the grace and blessings promised to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? So what this missionary is, is forcing new converts to do is that when they get baptized, they are making a vow that they're getting baptized and they won't seek their freedom, their physical freedom as a result of their baptism, but, but only focus on the fact that baptism saves their soul. And so there's this stark separation between the physical and the spiritual in the American church that persists, I would argue, even to this day. And I told you it's going to be hard. That's not all. Civil war in religious dimension, I mean, you know, the Civil War was a lot more than political. It was theological, it was spiritual, 
And for Christians in the South, it took on this sort of epic cosmic dimension. And the battle between the North and the South wasn't simply a political battle over states' rights and whether slavery would expand or remain in the South. It was actually a cosmic battle between good and evil. You don't believe me. Presbyterian theologian R.L. Dabney said, but for the African race, which God had placed in America, slavery was the righteous, the best, yea, the only tolerable relation. This is a pastor. He said, slavery was the righteous, best, and only tolerable relation for Africans and Americans. Another Presbyterian theologian, James Henley Thornwell, couched the question of slavery in the Civil War in theological terms. He said, the parties in this conflict are not merely abolitionists and slaveholders. The world is the battleground. Christianity and atheism, the combatants, and the progress of humanity at stake. So he's putting this battle between North and South, abolition and slavery, and he's saying that people who are advocating for slavery are the Christians and the abolitionists are the atheists, and that the world is the battleground, and nothing less was at stake than the entire progress of humanity. So Southern minister saying these things. When I was in seminary, I often heard these men quoted, oftentimes not just by professors, but by other students. And for a very long time, no one told me what they believed about black people. These men still get quoted without any qualification as to their racial views or their views on slavery. Not that we can't learn from people we disagree with, but I think something like that at least deserves mention. Now, there's a recent film called Birth of a Nation, but there was a film literally a century before that also called Birth of a Nation. It was a three-hour-long silent film produced uh, and directed by a man named D.W. Griffith. And Birth of a Nation told the romanticized history of the birth of the Ku Klux Klan. In D.W. Griffith's version, in Birth of a Nation, the Klan arose out of righteous indignation toward black people and Yankees who were ruining the South. In the climactic scene that leads to the birth of the KKK, a white woman is being chased by a black Union soldier who in the movie is depicted as a white person in blackface. This black Union soldier is disheveled, hats crooked, shirts unbuttoned, looks like a demon, deliberately. He's chasing this white woman through the woods with designs on raping her, which was often a trope used in the age of Jim Crow to demonize black men, is that they were going to rape white women. And so this movie depicts that. And, and at the climax of the movie, this woman, instead of, of losing her purity to this black Union soldier, she runs up to the top of the cliff and she hurls herself off of it and kills herself rather than be ravished. 
And it's in response to the death of his sister that this white man gathers up all of his friends. They don white robes and hoods and they go marauding through the South, evicting both white Yankees and black Unionists and kicking them out and restoring this beautiful, romantic, romanticized vision of the South. And that's Birth of a Nation. What's so interesting is that Birth of a Nation was actually the first film shown in the White House. The president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, was so taken by the film that he would invite crowds of people over multiple viewings to come to the White House and see this, this great cinematic masterpiece. Now, what does that have to do with race in the church? Well, what's interesting is that Woodrow Wilson's father was Joseph Ruggles Wilson, senior minister of First Presbyterian Church in Augusta, where in 1861, they had the first meeting of the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America. Passed on from father to son, from the church house to the white house. Did America help or hinder racial equality? A lot of people used the Bible to justify segregation. So as we get into the 20th century, uh, the Union wins the Civil War, the 13th Amendment is passed, the 14th Amendment is passed, slavery is legally abolished, and it's a whole other presentation to talk about how they perpetuated slavery but in a different form. Nevertheless, you have the legal end of, of slavery, but now you get Jim Crow, which by law and custom reinforces the racial caste system through segregation. But in 1954, what happens? What court case? Brown v. Board of Education. Eliminates legalized segregation in public schools and, and more broadly public facilities. And where were white Christians, particularly conservative white Christians, when this law was passed? Were they happy about it? Not a lot of them. Matter of fact, a lot of them opposed it, and they opposed it on biblical grounds. So following the Brown v. Board decision, a man named G.T. Gillespie, who was the president of Bellhaven College, now University, in Jackson, Mississippi, preached a message at a synod meeting, which is a meeting of all the local pastors in the area, a synod meeting of the Mississippi Presbytery, and the title of his address was, quote, A Christian View of Segregation. And in his message, he called forth a passage from Le Leviticus 19.19 to justify slavery and segregation on biblical grounds. In a section of that talk called Prohibitions Against the Mingling of Diverse Things, he said, quote, according to the law, according to the law delivered to Moses, the crossbreeding of diverse strains of cattle, the planting of mixed seeds, and the mixing of wool and linen in a garment were forbidden. We're not told the reasons for this curious law, but it seems impossible to escape the conclusion that if such intermixture of diverse elements in the lower orders of animal and plant life were unseemly and contrary to the divine purpose, the same principle would apply with even greater force with respect to human relations. So, so what Gillespie is doing is something called reasoning from the lesser to the greater. And he's saying if in Leviticus, the Bible says you can't mix cattle, seeds, wool, and linen garments, then surely the Bible does not want you to mix people of different races. 
And he's using the Bible to justify segregation and the opposition to the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision. The message was so popular that the All-White Citizens Council, which is just a more respectable but just as racist version of the Klan, distributed thousands of copies of his speech. Defending segregation from the Bible. During the Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King Jr. spoke at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is the flagship seminary of the largest white evangelical denomination in America, the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention. He speaks at their seminary. Even today, right around Martin Luther King holiday in January, you'll see folks from the SBC trot out this picture and they actually have a recording of MLK's speech that he gave during this visit. And they'll, 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 they'll quote this and they'll cite this positively, like, look at this great thing that back during the Civil Rights Movement, we invited Martin Luther King Jr. to speech and see, we were on the side of civil rights. But what they don't tell you is the reaction. So when Martin Luther King went to the seminary, he was well-received because he was invited by some of the faculty, the students were, were engaged but this was in the, quote, liberal days of the seminary. But the more conservative trustees and donors had a very different view of Martin Luther King. In a book about the seminary, historian Greg Wills says this, quote, the most serious damage was the alienation of churches and the loss of donations. As a result of MLK's visit to SBTS, the leader of an Alabama layman's group demanded the seminary president's dismissal some associations passed resolutions censoring the seminary, and many churches decided to withhold their cooperative program funds from Southern Seminary. In other words, because you had this rabble-rouser, Martin Luther King, come and speak at our seminary, some people demanded that the president be fired, some people passed resolutions condemning the seminary, and some people decided to withhold money from the cooperative fund, which is used from everything from church planting to missions work in protest of Martin Luther King Jr.'s visit to the seminary. Does Christianity help or hinder racial equality? Just a couple more examples as we move on to the present. Anybody heard of Bob Jones University? Well, in 1970, the Supreme Court got a little curious about their admissions policies. They inquired whether the university discriminated based on race, and the university, using the Bible as justification, responded to the Supreme Court, quote, we do not admit African Americans. So they were facing sanctions, and in 1975, there was an attempt to placate the Supreme Court, so the university decides to admit African Americans, but not unmarried African Americans. Now, why would you distinguish between married and unmarried African-Americans? Because the cardinal sin of integration was interracial dating. Because you know interracial dating leads to interracial marriage, and interracial marriage leads to interracial kids, and not in my family. That was Bob Jones University's stance. And so they actually had in their handbook 
that students who engaged in interracial dating would be expelled. In 1976, as a result, the IRS rescinds Bob Jones University's tax-exempt status as a religious institution. But it signaled to all Christian schools, K through 12, as well as in higher ed, that they too were at risk of losing their tax-exempt status. And this case is part of what formed what became known as the moral majority and the religious right. To protest for the right of Christian schools to discriminate based on race. Now, by this time we're all friends, right? Because <laughs> what I'm going to talk about next, you know, there's something that happened in 2016 politically. And I bring it up not for partisan reasons. I bring it up to highlight whether Christianity helps or hinders racial equality. You feel me? So I, don't, I don't know what your political beliefs are. Hold whatever views you do, fine, but let's think about it in this context, in the context of this question. So, that sign says, thank you, Jesus, Lord, for President Trump. This is at Jerry Falwell's church in Dallas, and that's actually, uh, that's the pulpit. That's where the pulpit normally is, and that's the choir behind him, big American flag. And so they've turned the pulpit and the stage into this political backdrop. And then there's this. Uh, this is by gospel singer and preacher Vicki Yoey Hodges. And it says, march all you want, protest all you want, President Donald Trump is our president for at least four years. No weapon formed against him will prosper. You know you are doing something right when there's so much opposition. Hashtag exciting times. And the meme here depicts a very Caucasian, European-looking Jesus. And it says, on my way back to the White House. I'm not making a partisan point. My point is this heavy identification on the part of some Christians with Christianity and the Republican Party. I'm saying that if you are evangelical Protestant, then 76% of you identify as white. So if we're talking about evangelical Protestantism in America, we're talking about mainly white evangelicals. We are talking about the fact that most of the largest evangelical denominations are majority white, including what I referenced before, the SBC, the largest white evangelical denomination in America, is over 80% white. And we're talking about that in the 2016 presidential election of the white evangelicals who voted, 81% voted for the current president. And so that has, if you paid attention to the news, brought up all kinds of questions about this label evangelical and whether people want to hold to it or not. Because in modern times, say since the 80s up till now, it's become so closely identified with a single political party that many people feel alienated from the label, both white and black. And so as we talk about race and the church, at some point, if you want to get really real, you also have to talk about politics. And I see some people getting tense, defensive, that's okay. My only point tonight, because I got a whole other presentation on politics and Christianity, my point tonight 
is that you cannot have a thoroughgoing discussion about race unless you also include politics. And the concept that we've seen in these pictures right here. So you wrestle with how you want to address that, but please address it. All right. So we almost done, y'all. So to the question of whether Christianity helps or hinders racial equality, most of what we've seen so far says it hinders it big time. I'm going to go quickly, though, through some examples that are counterexamples and, and, and times when, when Christians have actually deployed Christianity in resistance to racism. So I told you we got another Anglican here, William Wilberforce, and this time he comes around, all right? So Wilberforce works against slavery, and when he was convicted to be an abolitionist, he wrote in his journal, he says, so enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemable did the trade's wickedness, meaning slavery, appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I would from this time determine that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And so he presents numerous resolutions in British Parliament against racism. They were all defeated until finally, in 1807, they abolished the slave trade, although not slavery, and then 1833, July 26, Britain abolishes slavery itself. Three days later, William Wilberforce died. But because of his Christian faith, he fought for abolition in Britain. Another person, Richard Allen, is the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. What I find so interesting is that though he faced racism in his predominantly white church, he did not give up on Christianity. He went on to be the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and its first bishop. Black Christians have always seen through the hypocrisy of racist Christianity. Frederick Douglass says, what I have said in his autobiography, what I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slave-holding religion of this land and with no possible reference to Christianity proper. For between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. He saw through it. And this is one of my heroes, Fannie Lou Hamer, a poor, born a poor sharecropper in Mississippi, became a civil rights activist. She was beaten brutally in a jail in Mississippi, but here's what she said. Afterwards, she said, I feel sorry for anybody that could let hate wrap them up. Ain't no such thing as I can hate anybody and hope to see God's face. I told this story earlier today, and I'll tell you, um, I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to go to Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, we were there talking about uh, the history of race in the American church, and we did sort of a pilgrimage tour of the churches there. And on the last day, there was a, a buffet to, to end the night. And I was standing in line for the buffet. And there were, I was standing by two older black women. One of them was taller and very talkative. She had just been honored uh, at her church, which was Emmanuel, A-M-E, Mother Emmanuel, for being a black history maker in their congregation. But the lady she was with was much quieter. And finally, the lady who did most of the talking introduced her friend. And her name was Polly Shepard. If you remember the news stories, Polly Shepard was in the room when Dylan Roof killed nine people. 
at a Bible study at Emmanuel AME. She survived because he went over to her and he asked her, did I shoot you? And when she said no, he said, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to let you live so that you can tell everybody what happened here. And that was the woman standing right next to me in line. And when I found that out, I just didn't have any words. I just, I just went up and gave her a big old hug and said, thank you. Because her very survival, her very existence is resistance. And here she was, clinging to her faith, forgiving this murderer, because she loved Jesus. I'm going to wrap up here. As we talk about this question of whether Christianity helps or hinders racial equality, one thing I'll say by way of practical advice is don't look to the majority, look to the margins. Don't look to the majority, look to the margins. Look to the oppressed. Look to the people who have experienced injustice and inequality for the hope of change. The church is changing right before our eyes. In a book called The Next Christendom, Philip Jenkins says, over the 20th century, the center of gravity in the Christian world has shifted inexorably southward to Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Christianity should enjoy a worldwide boom in the new century, meaning the 21st century, but the vast majority of believers will be neither white nor European nor Euro-American. In another book called The, new, the Next Evangelicalism, Sung Chan Ra says, the American church needs to face the inevitable and prepare for the next stage of her history. We are looking at a non-white majority, multi-ethnic American Christianity in the immediate future. To trace the change, he says, in the year 1900, Europe and North America comprised 82% of the world's Christian population. By 2050, African, Asian, and Latin American Christians will constitute 71% of the world's Christian population, look to the margins. He says, to describe a typical Christian today, you would not picture a European, you would picture a young Nigerian mother on the outskirts of Lagos, a university student in Seoul, South Korea, or a teenage boy in Mexico City. That is the future in the face of Christianity. But as to this question, Does Christianity help or hinder racial equality? I think we should make it personal. The question is, do I help or hinder racial equality? For people of faith, does my Christianity help or hinder racial equality? I'll end with one last story that I think is one of hope. In 2015, I was invited to speak at a church on the topic of racial reconciliation. It's something I often do, have the privilege of doing in in churches around the country, and usually they're majority white congregations. And so I go to this church, and it's a historic church. It was founded a long time ago, in 1804, seen presidents come and go, wars come and go. This church was located in Augusta, Georgia. The name was First Presbyterian Church. It's the same church where in 1861, the Presbyterians divided over the issue of slavery and they formed the Presbyterian Church of the Confederate States of America. It's the same church where as a boy, Woodrow Wilson attended. 
who later showed Birth of a Nation, and it was now the same church where I got to stand in the pulpit where they preached slavery and segregation and talk about the, biblical call, the Bible's call to racial equality. And so to the question, does Christianity help or hinder racial equality? The answer is yes. The question is, will you and will your faith help or hinder racial equality in our day? Thank you very much.